I'm Mario Munoz, reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service. This is a COVID-19 update. During a Facebook Live event on June 24th, Hidalgo County Judge Richard Cortez reported a record high 373 new positive cases of COVID-19. County Judge Cortez announced new restrictions for Hidalgo County, including a curfew and restrictions on family reunions and public gatherings. Good afternoon. My name is Carlos Sanchez and I'm Director of Public Affairs for Hidalgo County. Thank you for joining us this afternoon uh, for a conversation with Dr. Ivan Melendez, the Hidalgo County Health Authority, who's going to give us some context about our current state of affairs as it relates to COVID-19. However, before that, uh, County Judge Richard Cortez is joining us briefly, who wants to make a few words uh, in terms of an announcement. Please, uh, to you, Judge Cortez. Thank you, Carlos. Well, good afternoon. This is your County Judge Richard Cortez. As you've been hearing and if you've been paying attention, we, we've had some, some very high numbers of new infections and fatalities here in Hidalgo County, which are certainly very unacceptable. Uh, we can't allow this to continue. We have to take every precaution necessary to protect the, the health and well-being of, of our citizens. The report that we're getting is that a lot of the the reason for these infections is really the the activities of our people here in Hidalgo County and also the lack of them willingness to take the necessary precautions. Uh, there are certain protocols that are out there already that we all know about them that work. Uh, when we had those restrictions in place, we enjoyed a very, very low rate of infections and a very, very low rate of people in hospitals or with serious illnesses in the in the ICUs. Today, that's not the case. One of the goals that we originally had was not to overwhelm our healthcare uh, providers, uh, our hospital beds, and and our and, and that sort of thing. Well, today we're, we're we're very close approaching to being to being the capacity. For that reason, uh, we're in the process of putting a, a new uh, order in place. That order in place is 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 going to require certain things. Uh, I'm going to impose a curfew uh, for people that are 17 and under uh, from from basically staying in their household between the periods of, uh, of 10 o'clock and, and, and 6 o'clock uh, in the morning. And for people over 18 from 11 o'clock at night, you know, to 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, this is very important to us because one of the one of the reasons for this increase in infections is that we're just having a lot of people continue to gather. They gather at night, they gather at parties, they gather at, at, at other functions. And this has been the primary cause of, of all this, this infection spreading. And a lot of it has been attributable to young people. So with this curfew, and, and we're also going to prohibit any social gatherings outside the household of no, of no more than, than, than 10 people. And there'll be other other restrictions uh, and other encouragement and comments that, that we're going to have in this order that, that, is, that is yet to be finalized, but it will soon be coming. But I ask you, I beg you, that, that the power to stop, to stop this virus, the power is within us. We have to continue to follow all the protocols and all the precautions that we're going to put an end to this. 
we, we, we cannot afford to go into hurricane season and flu season on top of this virus. So this is action that we must take, and I hope that we will be receiving all the cooperation of all our citizens. And for that, I, I thank you. I thank you for that. Thank you very much, uh, Judge Cortez. I know that you're busy. You've got a number of meetings to attend. So we're going to leave you at this point and be joined by Dr. Ivan Melendez, who is the Hidalgo County Health Authority. Uh, Dr. Melendez, are you there? I am. Are you capturing me? Uh, yes, you're there uh, and available. Is there any parting words you'd like to say, uh, Judge Cortez? No, thank you. Listen to, to Dr. Melendez. He's, uh, he's an expert and, and he's been one of my advisors and, and has helped me tremendously through this process. So please listen to him. Thank, thank you again, you. Judge Cortez. Uh, Dr. Melendez, let's start from the macro. And if you could just uh, describe a little bit uh, what your job entails as Hidalgo County Health Authority. Absolutely. Uh, let me start off by uh, thanking Judge Cortez uh, for working very close with us at the health department and uh, always being receptive uh, to the medical community uh, and what their take is uh, with our local experts and our local experience that we're, we're having. Um, uh, my name is Ivan Melendez, uh, uh, here from the Valley, living here since 65, and I've been the uh, health authority for the Hidalgo County now for over 10 years. A health authority is the physician that has been um, uh, appointed to uh, as being the liaison uh, or the voice of those uh, issues that deal with uh, health and well-being between the county and the community. Uh, my responsibilities entail uh, keeping the public informed of what the health issues are and what the recommendations are from the health department. In addition, uh, I supervise the delivery of health care for our county clinics, which provide prenatal care, well women's care, um, um, OB and deliveries, vaccinations, and tuberculosis. Uh, I represent uh, a team of many professionals in uh, public health, epidemiology, nursing, uh, etc. So my job is to keep the public informed of what is going on from the health perspective and give recommendations of what we can do to increase uh, the wellness of our community. Dr. Melendez, back in early March, before we had a single diagnosed case in Hidalgo County, you said it was appropriate for the public to be concerned, but not to panic. Where do we stand today? Well, it's always a gradient and panic is always a place where we don't want to be. So certainly uh, panic doesn't resolve our health. Uh, panic to me means uh, you give up and you don't think clearly of what needs to happen. Uh, concern, which is uh, probably a more, uh, a better term uh, uh, than worried, uh, means that you're taking the uh, information available and you're deciding whether you need to have a higher level of attention to it uh, develop plans, etc. I believe that currently uh, we it is appropriate to uh, be concerned um, where we are now. Obviously, when we did not have any cases before uh, March 21st and to the point that we are now, our level of concern is increasing. We have been able to uh, identify the trends that are coming forth 
and we have been attempting to be nimble uh, and to move uh, and to establish priority, different priorities depending on the data and the information at hand. Uh, today, the 24th of June, um, as a public health officer in the uh, County of Hidalgo, uh, I am uh, notably concerned about our current status with the coronavirus. And indeed, that status is one that has been marked over the past week with several record-setting days. And today we are on pace uh, to potentially break another record in terms of the number of new cases. Does that heighten your concern at all? Well, absolutely. So what we're seeing is we're seeing the numbers that we uh, consider uh, to be um, uh, uh, giving us a pulse of what the current status is uh, of this uh, pandemic have all uh, trending in the wrong direction. Our hospitalization rates, uh, uh, and let me tell you before I, I tell you this, I'm also an active clinician. I go to uh, all the hospitals in Hidalgo County with the exceptional NAP. I take care of the COVID patients myself. They're on my service. Uh, so not only am I involved in the macro perspective, uh, helping our elected officials with uh, policy recommendations, but also I'm where the rubber hits the road. I'm in the COVID units. I'm talking to these patients. I'm talking to the families. Uh, and so I believe I have a, a very pragmatic perspective of what's going on in our at least hospital population. In addition to that, uh, I'm on a daily communication with our uh, community physicians that are also giving me information of what they're seeing in their clinics and what their concerns are. Uh, with that in mind, uh, the numbers that I was alluding to that we're following that's causing a greater concern on all of us in the medical community uh, referred specifically to number of hospitalizations. We've seen almost a fivefold of hospitalizations within the last two week periods. It was not uncommon for us to hover around 19 or 20, 18, and in fact, uh, before um, May 1st, when we started opening up the uh, the economy, we were down in single digits in hospitalizations. Um, in the last two weeks, our numbers are now approaching 200. Uh, yesterday, we had over 150 people in the hospital, hospitalized. Keep in mind that only 10 to 20% of people that get this infection require hospitalizations. So those people that come to the hospital are people that have coronavirus that are moderate to serious. There are many people that come to the emergency departments, they're diagnosed and they're discharged home with the appropriate quarantine precautions. But those numbers that are being admitted are exponentially growing five times, six times in the last several weeks. We're now approaching the number of 200. All our major hospitals uh, to include NAP, Mission Hospital, uh, Regional Hospital, uh, Edinburgh Hospital, McAllen Medical Center, these are our major hospitals in Hidalgo County, have all, uh, either over extended their beds that they have now or about to. So every single hospital has increased their bed availability by using other parts of the hospital that was part of their contingency plan but were not being used before. So for example, I just left uh, doctor's hospital. They're almost up to 60 folks. Uh, their unit can only take 58. So they're making arrangements to open up other parts of the hospital to accommodate that. Regional hospital has opened up two units and now opening another floor. 
Edinburgh Hospital is doing the exact same thing. Mission Hospital has opened up units near the emergency department because their census for COVID patients is extremely high. NAP Hospital, unfortunately, I don't have that information for you at the time that we're doing this, but I can tell you that all of the hospitals that I'm aware of are exceeding their bed space, their original bed spaces. They still have spaces, of course. They're not saturated yet, but they've had to make, they've had to carry on their previous set contingency plans. They have not panicked. They have pre-planned of what they would do in case this occurred. And now those plans that were laid out months ago are now being put into action. That is to say that there are further plans so this, should this hospitalization growth uh, continue. In addition to that particular number, which I've only mentioned one, the number of hospitalizations, we also look at a number that is the percentage of those patients that are tested that turn positive. Frequently, we hear a lot of people say, well, the reason that we're having more people turning positive is because we're testing more. And uh, in fact, on a national level, that's been one of the opinions that is being set forth in the media, that the reason that we're having more numbers is because we're testing more. So what we look at in epidemiological perspective is we look at the percentage of people that are being tested that are positive. These numbers are also concerning. When we initially uh, started looking at these numbers back on March 21st, the first parts of March and the first parts of, I'm sorry, the latter part of March and the first parts of April, our average was very high. It was around 17%. The reason being is because we were only testing symptomatic patients that were um, associated to the original folks that were getting these diseases. So we had a household member, we would test five or six of them and a lot of them would become positive. So our percentage, positive rates were extremely high. Once the numbers started uh, to um, uh, increase and we started testing other people in the community besides contacts of those infected, our numbers began to come down. So our numbers went from 17, 15% originally down to around 2%. We're at a point where we're at 1.8% before the reopening of May 1st of our total percents. Currently, UTRGV is testing about 2,000 people. The military is testing about 2,000 people. We at the health department are testing about 200 people. And the private uh, 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 physician's office are also testing in the hundreds. So we're estimating anywhere between 4,500 to 5,000 people are being tested a week. Remember, it took us almost two months to get to 1,000 people tested because we didn't have the capacity to do so. So now that we're testing 5,000 a week, of course the numbers are gonna be dramatically high. Today's numbers, uh, which will be publicly made available uh, uh, at, a, at another day, uh, later on today, are the highest we've ever had, and they're above 300. And so my point is, is that that percent of numbers of people that turn positive which is a true indicator is increasing. Currently, our number is at 6%. 6% of the people that are tested in the, uh, currently in the, in the Hidalgo County are turning positive. How does that compare to the state? The state is at 9%, getting closer to 10. So there, there are several hot spots in the, air, in the state that are also increasing the percent positive. Uh, the nation, it's a number that it really doesn't tell you much because there are some parts in the nation that are 0% and there are some parts that are 30%. So I think it's better to look at the state number and the local number. So we're at, we're at 6%. 
trending upwards. Last week, we're in the threes. Now we're in the sixes. So even if you test more people and you're getting more percentage positive, that tells you that we're definitely getting more people that are getting infected. It's becoming a serious problem. The third thing we looked at, remember, the first was the total cases, the second, which is exponentially high. The second is a percent that are positive that are tested. The third number that we look at are the people that require intensive care units and ventilators. That's the fourth thing we look at. All are also dramatically increasing. There was a time when we were down to two, three, four, eight. A couple of weeks ago, 14, 15. Uh, today, we're going to have probably in the 30s of people that, uh, that are new ICU patients. So our ICU patient numbers are up, our ventilator numbers are up, our people being admitted to the hospital are dramatically up, the people that are testing positive are, are dramatically up, and the, people, and the percentage of those that are tested turning positive are up. So all of those five denominators that we look at are trending in the wrong direction and quite worrisome. Well, to be sure, um, World Health Organization uh, has suggested that a positive rate of 10% or below uh, is adequate. And what I'm wondering is um, at 6%, uh, if, is that a case for worry or is it something that is in lockstep with the other factors? I mean, we always knew as tests were going to become more available that the numbers would rise. Um, so what is kind of the nature or the crux of the concern that's a very good question, Carlos, and I think people that might be listening, because there's so much information from so many different sources, sometimes the information overload can be a little bit uh, uh, difficult to decipher. Uh, and so from my perspective, um, and from our audience, audience's perspective, I would like to focus really on the local numbers. The World Health Organization, of course, is looking at, at the most macro, at the most global level. From our perspective, uh, I think what's important is to look at locally in our numbers. The reason I say that is because, yes, people say that at 10%, that most places are able to uh, have the resources to take care of those folks. Uh, that being said, ask the people in Mexico, ask the people in Peru versus, versus asking the people in Paris or asking the people in Rome or asking the people in, in Houston. All these health systems have a different number of percentage of, of, uh, of positives that their health system can uh, absorb and, and do well with. What worries me at 6% is the rapidity, the, the quickness of which those numbers have increased. Now, the other issue, and I may be biased uh, to a certain event uh, because I do uh, uh, all of my clinical work in the hospitals. And so I'm seeing the, uh, I guess if you will, control chaos. I'm seeing the, the impact that this accelerated rate is causing in the hospitals. I'm seeing the staffing issues. I'm seeing, let me give you an example. There's one hospital today. Uh, they have of their 50 plus COVID patients in-house, 23 of them uh, require hemodialysis. So those hemodialysis on people with COVID, they have to be done at bedside. 
Well, of course, we also have a lot of people in our part of the country that go to the emergency departments to get emergency dialysis because that's their only source. They're not able to have a routine dialysis at dialysis centers. So imagine if you're having 23 bedside dialysis and then you still have to take care another 40 or 50 people uh, a week that need to be dialysed in the emergency department. So that's an example that I would like the public to know how even a doubling in our percent rate begins to tax significantly the resources that are available. Uh, right now, do I believe the resources at the hospitals are being taxed to the point of saturation? I do not. Now, if we were doubling, if we were at 6% today and we we're at 12% in two weeks and we we're at 24%, in another two weeks, that would be a catastrophic event for us. Um, of course, there are plans should that occur, and we could discuss that at your will. Uh, but the answer to your question, because I know I tend to drag on, is is 6% significant to the World Health Organization at 10%? My succinct response is absolutely when you see the quickness that it has doubled. Dr. Melendez, early on in this crisis, uh, there was a term that became commonplace, flattening the curve. And we haven't heard much about that lately. And I'm just wondering where we are with regard to that curve, because it seemed like Hidalgo County was doing fairly well. Yes, I, I wish that I had the capacity right now to show you the graphic, but these graphics are available on the Hidalgo County uh, Health Department website. Uh, and uh, they're distributed to most of the local physicians. They have those available too, should you want to see these graphs. Uh, but flattening of the curve originally, uh, the reference was uh, if you created a graph which had the a number of patients, new patients that were being uh, identified versus time, you wanted to make sure that the graph was an elliptical graph where you had the area underneath the top of the curve that would flatten out. So instead of having a U shape, uh, you might want to have a T shape or you might have a plateau a lot quicker. The idea is that those people that were in that underneath that curve, no matter depending on how high the curve was, was uh, representative of those resources that were going to be required by the local health services, hospitals, doctors offices to provide care for folks that we didn't have people like they had in New York City and other places where you would see the body bags that were just that were just laying in rooms. There were so many of them, people that were literally in Italy and that were you had to choose who was the sickest because the sickest meant the least amount of survivability. So those people were they were not given the attention to those people that that those people that were thought to be salvageable. So the flattening of the curve was a very, very important uh, perspective because it gave us an idea of how, not only how many people over time, but what resources were available. So that being said, our curve was dramatically flattened until May 1st. And then two weeks after May 1st, where we opened up the community again, uh, we started once again, the curve increasing. Right now, if you look at the curve, it is the, the steepest slope or the steepest increase that we have seen since we started. So uh, before the curve might've started up and then began to increase dramatically and then slow down and started coming down. Now it's straight up. And so the, we are nowhere near flattening of the curve. Some people would call it a second wave. 
And so the second wave was a term that was used in the pandemic in the early 1900s. Um, some people are not fond of that term, but what it meant was is that we had another another peak in, uh, in numbers and peak in utilization and we're absolutely uh, on, on a second wave or you know a flashback, if you will. So flattening of the curve was a, 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 a concept that was used to determine number of people and where there were enough resources available. And people would also use it to determine how many people, new people over time. So our curve is not flattened. Uh, I think on a national level, people are tending to move away from the term flattening of the curve because people would have different interpretations. But if the question is, are we having more people that require resources that is not flattening the curve? The answer is absolutely, we're not flattening the curve. Are we having a, an exponential growth or a large growth? I have to be careful the word exponential because exponential refers to a, a mathematical exponent that causes growth. So if you look for a pure mathematical uh, definition, we do not have an exponential growth because that means that every day you would double or triple. Uh, but we are having a notable growth. Yes, more resources are being needed. Yes, more people over time. And yes, uh, a straight up look on the, on the curve itself. So we're not flattening the curve. Given all these indices that are pointing in the wrong direction, as you indicated, what is your major concern? So my major concern, I think, is very uh, intuitive to understand. Our deaths have doubled. In, in three weeks. We have people that are 40 years old, 50 years old, 60 years old that are dying. Our average age of a person turning positive is no longer in the 60s and 70s when we were testing people in nursing homes. Now it's in the 30s. So the average age is 35 years old because so much at will, or that is testing without symptoms is being done. So we're seeing that those mobile people, those people that are going to work, that are going to restaurants, that are going to dances, that are going to pachangas in our culture, those are those asymptomatic, 80 to 90% or minimal symptomatic patients are running around the community uh, because they don't have any symptoms. Uh, so my concern is twofold. One is that um, if we do not find a way to curb the amount of people that are turning positive that we will overwhelm our resources that are available locally to help people. We've already uh, uh, received phone calls from other communities uh, that are requesting perhaps transferring patients to our community because they're overwhelmed in their hospital systems. We have obviously advised not to do that at this point because we're at a crisis point too. But what that tells you is that there are other communities who are not as fortunate as we are to have so many hospital beds available that are already looking to send somewhere else. My first concern would be that we overwhelm our capacity to provide care for the acutely ill. My second concern is that I believe, and this is purely a subjective perspective, I don't have any science to back it up, but I believe that on May 1st, when we opened up uh, to business, which of course, we needed to. I mean, people were going under incredible financial duress. I don't think there's a person that would, maybe a person, but I think the vast majority of people would say it was time to get things going. But my concern is, is that the public, our audience, uh, many people in the community believe, great, the problem is gone. They've opened up for us to be moving. And so with the opening of the community, then that means we don't have a problem anymore. Uh, 
I believe that the numbers are so dramatic right now that during the last perhaps several days, I've seen uh, more introspection, more insight of people in the community beginning to understand that this is far from over. So my fear, my concern is that the people will not take serious the current situation, how dramatically it's changed uh, during the last several weeks and continue to uh, not take the appropriate mitigation steps. I don't have to remind your audience that this disease is not curable, that the only way that we can bring these numbers down and protect our community is by not getting the disease. And because this disease requires a human host, the only way that you cannot get it is to minimize your contact with other humans. It's pretty straightforward. If we look at the data, if we look at the curves, if we look at all our numbers, guess what? We were doing fantastic. I mean, we were doing textbook, Thank God we were doing great. And then the moment we began to loosen up social interaction, our numbers exploded. So if you do something and it works, fantastic. If you change your treatment plan and it doesn't work, then you have to readjust. I remember we're locally somewhat limited in the restrictions that we can place forward that we had before because now we're more mandated at a state level as opposed to a local level. Uh, but so my first concern, of course, are the numbers are increasingly great, overrunning our hospital system uh, and people not understanding how serious this is, thinking that because they're young and invincible, nothing's going to happen. And of course, more deaths and, and more serious disease in our community. Today's conversation began with Judge Cortez announcing another course correction and the reimposition of some restrictions. Do you believe that's the right course of action? Yeah, can, can you hear me? Because I've lost you a little bit. Are you still able to hear me? Okay, if, yeah. if you can't hear me, let me know. Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I believe uh, being in meetings and, and um, interacting with our elective uh, officials that they have had uh, by far, their first priority has been to protect the community. Uh, I have seen them have the courage uh, to take uh, uh, decisions that are vastly unpopular and that have dramatic financial impact on their constituents. I've seen them also attempt to understand that financial impact and try to do the, the best balance they possibly can. I believe that our, uh, our, our local recommendations would be significantly more restrictive uh, if um, they were not, uh, I guess, mandated by the state level. I think that the state restrictions, in my personal opinion, based on Hidalgo County, have been much looser than what I would have recommended. And I believe that our elected officials, I can't speak for them, uh, would have been responsive, responsive to those recommendations based purely on what we're seeing. I, I, it's hard to argue. So the, I think the question is, what is the right balance? And that I don't have the answer to. Doctor, another public misperception uh, that has long accompanied this, this disease is the notion that it's no worse than, than the flu. Um, you as a clinician have seen on a daily basis the worst of the worst. Can you give us a sense of how bad this really can be when it attacks you? 
So, yeah, so I hear that pretty often. I hear uh, I hear it in the press, national, state, and local media. I hear it from patients. I've heard it even from some doctors that I, I am not directly involved in the treatment of COVID patients. And what I hear erroneously is it's more people die from the flu, uh, more people uh, uh, get hospitalized because of the flu. First of all, that's statistically wrong. As you probably know, uh, the number the number one cause of death after uh, heart and trauma uh, about two weeks ago became COVID-19 in the United States. So COVID-19 has been the leading number one disease that leads to, to death uh, in the last several weeks. We knew it was coming. Um, so the difference between the COVID and the influenza is, uh, is dramatic. Uh, the influenza virus has shown a, a dramatic capacity to to change, to alter the way that it attacks people. If you know when you get the flu shot, you're getting a different set of types of flus based on what was the most common flus types that occurred the year before. So every year when we recommend the flu shot, it's because it's a new it's a new antigen. It's a new way to get the body to make antibodies based on what was the most frequent the year before. And so it has been much more able, the flu has been, to change and attack. That's a very good thing for that particular virus because it provides its ability to survive. It's a very bad thing for humans. Fortunately, Corona, to this point, remember it's a relatively new virus, uh, November of last year, maybe October of last, who knows, but a relatively new virus. It, ha it has showed some mutations, but not anywhere near what the flu has shown. So absolutely, from that perspective, the flu is just as bad, if not worse. However, that's kind of a nerdy academic perspective. The reality of it is, or pragmatic of it is, is that the capacity for the coronavirus to infect a person is dramatically higher than regular flu. If you look, I won't bore the audience with the, the infectability uh, descriptions or denominations or how you get to those, but it, we measure how infective one thing is versus the other. If you're in a room with a person that has, for example, polio or tuberculosis or the flu versus coronavirus, coronavirus is extremely infectious extremely so it's a much more dangerous type of, of uh, phenomenon the uh, because this is my personal belief because it's so infectious there's so many people that are infected and therefore whatever that percent is say 10 percent they get dramatically ill i don't know if anybody knows that if every single day in the rio grande valley we were getting 300 new cases of influenza a if we'd be seeing the dramatic end product of that influenza, respiratory failure, uncontrollable pneumonias, because we're not getting 300 and plus more cases every day. But because we're having such large numbers, or in, in view that we have large numbers, we're seeing a lot of end products. We're seeing those 10% that are getting sicker. So to be succinct, different viruses, different ability to infect, uh, and much more lethal the coronavirus has been. Uh, same populations, those people that have comorbidities, 
the most common obesity and diabetes, which as you know, our county is number one and two around the country in obesity and diabetes every year. Uh, and so uh, our ability to uh, minimize the infectability of the coronavirus is, is much more difficult than the flu. And we're seeing much more people dying from uh, this particular virus as opposed to the flu. Doctor, is there any understanding with regard to how our proximity to Mexico is affecting the direction of this infection? It's a very good question. So uh, I have a friend who works in Reynosa. He's a physician. And I've asked him to, to send me some rosters. The hospitals are book solid with what they call atypical pneumonia atypical pneumonia. Um, they, they reported a 15% rate of infectability. I don't know, excuse me, of positives. I don't even know what that means because we don't know how many people they're testing, who they're testing. But I can tell you that uh, there is a, a big problem uh, south of the border with this particular disease. I do believe uh, that there has been a very effective um, uh, uh, minimization or diminishing uh, people coming over from Mexico over here and and us coming over to Mexico. You can tell by what our retailers are telling us, while, while our folks downtown are telling us, so we know that there's a lot less people coming over. The direct impact of those people that have infected our population or have brought it over from Mexico is unknown to me. I can tell you that what I see based on what our epidemiologists are doing is that most of our infections that we're getting here are coming from other family members. Most of the people that we see, for example, now we're seeing because the military and UTRGV are testing people at will. We'll see father come in his car with his four kids and his wife. So we have six people in the car, father's positive and so are the other kids. So we're seeing a lot of positive families. It's been hard for us to say, nobody in the family, this is the only one. He must've gotten it at Lowe's or he must've gotten it at the restaurant or he must've gotten it at work. Very hard to say that. On the other hand, we've had some other, other facilities, for example, uh, assisted living facilities where they have been very, very, very restricted on visitations and on movement and all of a sudden they're getting three or four people that are turning positive. And you ask yourself, well, if no one's coming and no one is going, how are these residents that never leave the facility getting infected? And lo and behold, we'll find a healthcare worker there that turns positive. So is it that the patient gave it to the worker or the worker gave it to the patient? I personally believe because the patient goes home, and I'm sorry, the, the worker goes home and the patient does not, it's probably coming from the worker, not from the patient that never leaves. So with that exception, I believe that the great majority of the transmission that we're seeing is in the community and it's from a family member to family member. You know, we have a spike after Father's Day. We all have pachangas, you know, that our our culture is we, we get together. You know, when you drive down the street on a Saturday or Sunday, you'll go by a house every couple of blocks where there's 10 or 12 cars that are parked on the street. So you know they're having a get together there. I, I believe that this is one of the uh, primary reasons why we're seeing this being you know, spreading the way it is. 
Doctor, at this point, I'd like to bring in my colleague, Carolina Teran, who will be asking just a question or two in Spanish so that we can convey this message uh, to the Spanish-speaking audience. Yes, sir. Carolina, please join us. Muchísimas gracias. ¿Cómo está, Dr. Meléndez? Gracias por estar con nosotros aquí en el Condado de Hidalgo. Solamente nos estábamos demorando un poquito para darle la oportunidad de que haga switch y que ahora tengamos la oportunidad de hablar en español un poco para nuestra gente. Gracias por estar aquí en nuestro Condado de Hidalgo, por supuesto, ser parte de este Departamento de Salud y, por supuesto, ser la máxima autoridad aquí en nuestro Condado de Hidalgo en cuanto a la parte de salud se refiere. Muchas personas quieren escuchar a un médico en vez de escuchar a otra persona. Tenemos la oportunidad ahora de tenerlo a usted, que es estudiado, que es graduado en medicina, que es doctor, señoras y señores, y todos los que están en este momento conectándose. Hablemos un poquito acerca de cómo vamos, doctor, en cuanto al COVID-19. Bueno, muchas gracias, Carolina, y bienvenidos al público eh, españoparlante, y gracias por recibirme, es, es un placer, aparte de una obligación como parte del departamento de, de compartir información con ustedes. Eh, eh, he tenido la, realmente el privilegio, la bendición de poder eh, no solamente participar en una parte administrativa, pero también de atender eh, en el hospital eh, los pacientes eh, enfermos con este virus. Entonces, tengo eh, percepción de, de una dirección directa del de estado de estos pacientes, eh, eh, el cuidado de estos pacientes, el dolor que están sufriendo los familiares, los impactos que hemos visto en la separación de las personas enfermas, de sus familiares que no pueden ir a los centros de envejecientes o no pueden ir al hospital a verte. He visto la tristeza de ver eh, varios pacientes morir en soledad eh, sin sus familiares alrededor de ellos, que es una de las experiencias más realmente tristes que he tenido, eh, ver una persona de edad avanzada morir sola eh, en un cuarto, porque realmente pues, es difícil predeterminar que la persona se va a morir en 20 minutos o 15 minutos. Entonces, eh, como las familias... Eh, pueden solamente pasar a ver el paciente en los momentos finales y solamente una persona a la vez. Eh, es, ha sido muy difícil eso. Ha sido muy difícil personalmente tener pacientes de mucho tiempo que fallecen y nadie ha podido ir al, al funeral. Tiene que ser de lejos. Entonces, eh, eh, quiero que el público sepa que aparte de la cuestión administrativa, que, que es un placer eh, participar, que también eh, tengo esa experiencia de realmente estar viendo a los pacientes. La razón por la cual explico eso eh, no es para, para realmente hablar del doctor Meléndez, eh, porque nuestro trabajo es un trabajo de humildad, pero para que ellos entiendan que es bien difícil, eh, es bien diferente escuchar las opiniones y la información de una persona que lo está viviendo, una persona que está participando directamente, no es la opinión de una persona que lee o que ve el medio de televisión y ellos forman sus opiniones o, o personas que quizás no cuidan a nuestros pacientes es muy diferente cuando tú estás directamente envuelto en, 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 eh, en rendirle servicios médicos a esta persona 
eh, las, eh, quise explicar eso para que tuviera un poquito de introspección el público. Eh, la situación del COVID, eh, desafortunadamente, vemos que todos los factores eh, que seguimos eh, para eh, determinar el criterio que usamos, a ver si la batalla se está ganando o si vamos a la dirección opuesta, eh, son de preocuparse. Eh, los números de nosotros que vemos, por ejemplo, la cantidad de pacientes que se han hospitalizado, la gente que se muere, el porcentaje de las personas que se hacen la prueba y salen positivos, este, los números de personas en intensivo, eh, en los hospitales, los números de personas que necesitan ventiladores, eh, todos esos factores que usamos para tener una idea objetiva, concreta, no subjetiva, opinionada, sino data científica objetivo, apuntan hacia una eh, dirección preocupante, ¿verdad? Nadie de, eh, eh, que yo conozco es, siente pánico, porque cuando uno está en pánico no puede responder apropiadamente, pero sí es eh, preocupante. Ejemplo, eh, hoy tenemos más de 300 personas que salen positivos. Eh, hace, qué sé yo, un mes teníamos... 10, 12, 14, ahora más de 300. Eh, número dos, eh, nos tardamos casi dos meses en hacer mil pruebas. Ahora estamos haciendo 4 mil, 5 mil pruebas por semana. Entonces el público y la gente que opina dice, es la razón por la cual los números están subiendo. Entonces nos fijamos el porcentaje de las personas que se hacen el, estu el estudio, sean 10 o sean 1000, ¿qué porcentaje salen positivos? Eso es un número mucho más importante. Y antes estábamos 2%, 1.8, 3%. Hace, qué sé yo, 10 días, hace dos semanas estábamos en 3%. Ahorita estamos el día de hoy en 7%. 7%. El Estado está en 9%. 7% es un número altísimo. Entonces... No los aburro con los números de las personas que están en el hospital, ventiladores, intensivo, pero sí es importante entender que todos esos números están creciendo a un número alarmante. ¿Cómo estamos en estos momentos en cuanto a la capacidad en, la, en los hospitales, en camas, en ventiladores, en el mismo personal? ¿Qué le decimos a la gente para que entiendan que estamos listos que los podemos recibir, pero que también todos debemos poner de nuestra parte, porque esto es una enfermedad, esto es un virus que está en estos momentos en el aire y que la única forma es guardando la precaución. Yo creo que no lo, yo no lo podría poner en palabras eh, más efectivas, eh, Carolina, que le acabas de usar. Creo que ese es el sentimiento de todos nosotros. Estamos preparados. Eh, estos planes de los hospitales, los cinco hospitales, NAP, Mission, Edimburgo, McAllen y, y Doctors Hospital, que son los cinco eh, hospitales que están eh, recibiendo los pacientes de COVID, todos establecen sus planes de hace meses de eh, cómo ajustarse a los números que están creciendo. Todos los hospitales han estado eh, eh, implementando esos planes que no queríamos implementar. Antes del primero de mayo eh, pensábamos que gracias a Dios vamos a la dirección tan bonita, tan buena, y como se esperaba un mes después, 
ahora seis semanas después, los números están tan grandes que se ha tenido que implementar estos planes. Por ejemplo, abrir otras partes del hospital para las camas de los pacientes. Por ejemplo, el, eh, el eliminar o minimizar procedimientos no necesarios. Eh, por ejemplo, tener criterio estricto para admitir solamente a la gente que está sumamente enferma, no todo mundo que llegue y quiera admitirse. Entonces, eh, los planes continúan en modificarse dependiendo de los números que tenemos. Eh, si sigue aumentando, los planes se pueden escalar hasta establecer un hospital alterno, o sea, un edificio alterno en donde se pueden eh, hospitalizar o atender los pacientes que no están tan seriamente enfermos, pero que sí están enfermos, muy enfermos para la casa. Entonces, este hotel o este centro de eventos o como lo quiera nombrar, eh, eh, se prepara para recibir a sus pacientes. Entonces, estamos en este momento adecuadamente para recibir todos los pacientes. Eh, creo que podríamos todavía sostener este sistema eh, eh, si se continúa a duplicar los números que tenemos, pero pronto después se va a saturar y se satura. Hay planes para ver qué vamos a hacer si se satura. Los ventiladores eh, eh, hay suficientes y hay planes para conseguir más casi inmediatamente. Eh, entonces, lo, lo que tú dices en la pregunta es 100% de acuerdo. Estamos preparados, hay planes por si aumenta, los números son preocupantes, ya hemos implementado eh, 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 planes que, que tomaban eso en cuenta. Pero lo que no ha, lo que creo que el público me gustaría recordarles porque creo que lo que he dicho es algo que es lógico. Si uno no tiene el privilegio, la bendición de estar en los hospitales y atender a estos pacientes, uno no se da cuenta de, de algo muy importante. Y eso es la valentía, el, la dedicación, el dolor humano, las lágrimas en nuestros enfermeros, en los doctores. Y perdona que me emociono, pero es algo impactante. O sea, tengo enfermeras eh, embarazadas, eh, tengo gente que no quiere atender a estos pacientes, pero por su obligación a su profesión o por vergüenza de, como decimos en, en buen mexicano, de rajarse. Eh, ellos ponen su, sus familias y sus intereses para proveer sus servicios. Hemos tenido doctores, enfermeros, que, que, que han estado cerca de la muerte eh, eh, porque se han infectado de cuidar los pacientes. Entonces, imagínense todos los días ir a trabajar con el temor o que te va a tocar la unidad o que, que, que no, 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 no estás preparada emocionalmente, te preocupas por tus hijos... Entonces hay un costo humano tan grande eh, que, que, y específicamente eh, los enfermeros, los técnicos, los terapistas, los que sacan sangre, los doctores también, pero es, 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 nuestro, es nuestro llamado, ¿no? Pero hay gente que realmente eh, le estamos pidiendo, le estamos exigiendo muchísimo. Y la frustración, la razón por la cual me ves casi a lágrimas, es que entonces salgo a la comunidad y veo que la gente, por no saber, no es porque la gente es mala, quizás por no entender, 
el gran sacrificio que su prójimo, su primo, su hermano, todo el mundo tenemos enfermeros y tenemos gente de salud en nuestra familia, lo que están haciendo para dar servicios y mucha gente comportándose un poco irresponsable, eh, no toman eso en cuenta. Por eso quería compartir eso contigo. ¿Cómo hacemos antes de cerrar esta entrevista para hacer que nuestra gente, nuestro público, nuestro hispanoparlante entienda que el cubrirnos la boca nos ayuda, que te salvas tú y que salvas a la otra persona también, el utilizar nada más que el mantener la higiene, el de lavarnos las manos y el de utilizar el cubreboca ayuda, ¿qué le decimos a nuestra gente, usted como médico ¿cómo les puede decir a ellos? úsenlo, porque esto es lo que nos lleva a salvar vidas uh, número uno hay que eh, educar eh, número dos, hay que educar eh, número tres, hay que educar y número cuatro, hay que ser ejemplo. Hay que ser ejemplo para nuestra comunidad. Eh, tenemos varias muertes. Imagínate, varias muertes que la persona que se muere obtuvo la enfermedad de sus hijos, de sus familiares. El papá de 70 años, que el hijo de 20 años fue el que le dio la enfermedad. Imagínate cómo se va a sentir ese hijo. Eh, no es que ellos tengan la culpa, no es que sea irresponsable. A lo mejor esas personas se portaron de la manera más, más adecuada, pero no, no tenían síntomas, no se dieron cuenta. Pero es importante entender que la mayoría de los casos que estamos teniendo ahorita son de 20 y 30 años. Y la mayoría de las muertes son de 50, 60 y 70 años. Yo tengo 60 años. Yo no me considero viejito. Entonces, yo pienso, yo pienso que esta no es una enfermedad que mucha gente piensa, que es de los abuelos, de la gente. ¿Por qué? Porque dice, bueno, 40% de las muertes son personas que viven en asilos. Ok, 40% de las muertes que estaban en Nueva York son gente de los asilos, pero no aquí. Aquí la mayoría de las personas que se mueren son personas que viven, están viviendo en la comunidad, no están viviendo en los asilos. Sí hay gente que ha fallecido. Pero la mayoría no son la gente que vive en los, en los asilos, son personas que están en la comunidad. Entonces, ¿cómo podemos eh, educar al público? Eh, yo creo que programas como este, eh, dar ejemplos, eh, tener personas que tienen eh, la dicha de, de, de entender un poquito más por, o por, por experiencia o por educación o por X razón que están en, están en esto. Eh, y, y pues yo creo que básicamente esa es la contestación, educar, educar, educar. La gente dígale es... usted, antes de irnos, dígales, utilicen el, la, la cobertura facial, lávense las manos, dígaselo usted que es doctor a nuestra gente para que entiendan y acepten okay. que esa es, es la manera de salvarnos. Esto es bien fácil, simplemente porque uno es doctor definitivamente no significa que uno es más inteligente. Lo que significa es que tuviste la oportunidad de educarte. Pero hay muchas personas en la comunidad más inteligentes que los doctores. Tienen sus conocimientos en otras cosas. A lo que voy es que es fácil entender que si tú no tienes contacto con otras personas, no te vas a enfermedad. Si tú te tapas, no vas a proveer esa mucosidad no vas a recibirlo, si tú te lavas las manos vas a matar el virus, si mantienes distancia no va a poder acercarse, es lógica, hasta una persona, hasta un niño de 8 años puede entender el concepto, no es difícil. Sentido común. Sentido común. 
sentido común. Muchísimas gracias, doctor Meléndez. Se nos termina el tiempo. Nuestro director Carlos Sánchez ya está entrando a pantalla para decirnos ya. <risa> por hoy. Entiendo. Entonces, lo vamos a comprometer para que sigamos conversando con nuestra gente, que nos sigan llegando preguntas y que, por supuesto, podamos presentárselas a usted y que usted, como médico y como cabeza del Departamento de Salud de nuestro condado de Hidalgo, tenga la oportunidad de compartir con nuestra gente. Gracias a su trabajo, gracias al trabajo que realizan todos los que están en unión con usted, los enfermeros, los otros doctores, todos los especialistas. Gracias por esta oportunidad, gracias por ayudar a nuestra gente a extender su vida, a salvarla. Yo sé que ese es su título, la parte hipocrática que tienen ustedes, pero debemos decirlo. Gracias, en nombre de nuestro condado de Hidalgo, en nombre de esta servidora Carolina Terán, le deseo lo mejor, cuídese mucho y por supuesto, ayude a nuestra gente. Gracias Carolina, es un placer. This concludes today's Facebook Live. I'd like to invite people to visit our newly redesigned website with a lot of new graphics and up-to-date information. It's at hidalgocounty.us. And I'd like to thank Dr. Ivan Melendez for his time. Thank you very much, Carlos. My pleasure. This has been a COVID-19 update. I'm Mario Munoz reporting for the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service. <laughs>